What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Convergence Podcast. The Convergence is a space designed for university students, college students, and young adults to explore and deepen their faith. It's a space to think, question, doubt, and hopefully, ultimately, worship. We're so glad that you're here. I have had a bunch of you ask when this was going to be posted. Well, here it is at last. This talk took place on January 20th, 2022. I had asked my good friend, Dr. David Harvey, to come and speak to us on the very real and misunderstood miracles of Jesus. David is a biblical scholar, and he is the pastor of Westside King's Church here in Calgary. If you haven't heard this thought-provoking message yet, I know you're going to love it. Enjoy. My subject uh, this evening is the very real and misunderstood miracles of Jesus, Uh, which another way to ask that question would be, if we're talking about the miracles of Jesus, did they happen and what do they mean? Um, Are they real? I was thinking about the fact that we we just said the creeds together. Uh, we, uh, you know, divided by, uh, by distance, but connected by that internet, we all confessed this idea uh, together of what we believe. And as I was thinking about it, as we said it, I, I quickly scribbled in my notes, I'm here to talk about are the miracles real and are they misunderstood? And as we said the creeds, I thought, goodness, like, there is way more crazier things that we believe and confess as Christians than any of the miracles that Jesus did. Um, And that's maybe an important thing for us to state right at the start in any conversation about are the miracles real? The, The miracles require some faith. The miracles require something that we have to believe in. And, and I think that at some level is a question about how we actually think about belief. What we tend to do, I think, as humans, uh, particularly in the modern context, is that we, we kind of call, we call them miracles, which is basically to say they're not something that happens regularly. They're something that happens or may happen or may not happen that isn't normal. And what we do is we say, I don't know if, if this, I'm not trying to read your mind, but if this is how your processing works, I know that miracles don't happen. So that now that I know that, and maybe that's a scientific statement, maybe that's a statement based on experience, but I know that these things don't happen. So now let me try and make sense of Jesus and what Jesus' miracles are doing from that perspective. So whatever I'm gonna to come to the conclusion of, it's gonna be weird, different, and abnormal. The Christian confession, however, we began by saying, I believe in Jesus. I actually believe in God the Father, and then then I believe in Jesus, and then we also believe in the Holy Spirit as well. We talk about believing in virgin birth. We talk about his, his life and ministry. You see, the Christian confession is that Jesus is truth, that Jesus is the one that we believe in, So therefore, perhaps, what the Christian confession requires of us is not to say, well, we know that miracles don't work and let's now think about Jesus, but the Christian confession works the other way around. It says, well, we believe in Jesus, let's make sense of everything through that lens. And at some level, I suppose what I'm thinking about is what is a change to how we think about things. Our tendency as, as modern people is to treat everything with suspicion. I'll believe it's not true until I see that it is true. Yet we said a creed together as a group of people and we are really saying, well, here's the things we trust in and let's trust in them until we think something else. I'm not inviting you to suspend belief. I'm not inviting you to be irrational but maybe I'm just asking you to question how we ask questions. And maybe the way that we ask questions of Jesus gets us into trouble before we even get to the questions. So at some level, what I'm saying is simply this. Are the miracles of Jesus real? That's kind of up to you. I can't, I can't convince you that they are, and I shouldn't convince you that they are. What I can ask you to do is trust Jesus. 
And if you're gonna trust Jesus, then maybe that's a way to make sense of everything. So I'm, I'm sort of building something of a frame. That might be hugely disappointing, uh, but if you know, maybe you were hoping that I was gonna spend a lot of time talking about are these miracles real? How can we prove they actually happened? At the end of the day, you know, we have a book, and in that book it tells us stories about Jesus and it asks us to believe those things. And the question of what you do with that is up to you. So at some level I'm asking the question, what do we mean by real? Uh, do, did these really happen? Are they factual? Well, let's move on from that to ask a question about their truth. I, I opened by asking, did they happen and what do they mean? Well, the question of whether something happened factually, like I say, we weren't there, you weren't there, I wasn't there. We're always gonna answer that question based on what we're willing to trust, what we're willing to believe in. But what do these stories mean? What are these stories about? What can we learn from these stories? Well, that might be more interesting. The great uh, German theologian, or Swiss theologian rather, let me be really accurate, uh, although he, he wrote in German, which is what throws me, uh, Karl Barth, he said this, which I love. He said, what interests me is not myself with my faith, but he in whom I believe. So we could have a big conversation about how we come to believe things and how we build our faith and how we construct our trust. But at the end of the day, that would be quite boring. What would be more interesting is actually talking about Jesus and what that might mean. So I wanna do that. I wanna talk about the second half of our question, inviting you to trust the first half, to begin with trust and say, let's just work that these stories are what they are. And then let's ask the question about what they possibly mean. There's many ways to approach miracle stories of Jesus because there are four gospels, four different stories that, that take a narrative journey through the aspects of the story of Jesus that they want to tell. Um, and you could kind of pick any one of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and say, let's look at the stories of Jesus. You could pick all of them, throw it into a kind of big you know, uh, jambalaya in the middle and just sort of see what comes out. I think one of the best ways to look at biblical texts is to allow them to speak for themselves. So instead of taking a bit of Luke and a bit of John and a bit of Mark, let's just focus on one. And I'm gonna do that uh, this evening for you just by talking about Luke's gospel. Luke has an agenda, Luke has a story that he's trying to tell, and I'm not making that up, he tells you that in verse one. He's like, I'm trying to organize some things for you here so that you can understand clearly uh, this particular story. Luke appears to be a medical doctor. Uh, now, a medical doctor in those days and a medical doctor now are slightly different things, but we do notice when Luke talks about Jesus' miracles, he seems to reflect an interest in some of the detail of people's ailments and disabilities and injuries that the other gospel writers are not so interested in. But what's curious is although he gives us these descriptions and these sort of outlines of these miracle stories, the purpose of him telling these stories, he's actually quite explicitly clear about. So if we sort of immerse ourselves into his story, we, we can see what he's doing in miracle stories. And I think if we see that, it helps us massively in our contemporary context. One of the things Luke does is he focuses on, this should be easy to remember, this is hopefully as most sermon-like uh, this will become this evening. Uh, Luke focuses a lot on three things, uh, and that is the least, the lost, and the last. Uh, so hopefully easy to remember because it's three L's, least, lost, and last. What you'll notice in the parables that Luke recalls of Jesus, in the way that he presents the miracle stories, in fact, in pretty much how he tells us the whole story, he focuses on the outsider, the ignored, the marginalized, the, the downtrodden, the people who are not in power. You read Matthew's story, he gives you magi coming with gold and frankincense to visit Jesus. In Luke, Jesus gets smelly shepherds, uh, the outcasts of society, the sort of slightly frowned upon members of, of, of the society. So if you want glitz and gold in Hollywood, you go to Matthew, Luke's gonna give you the outsider being welcome at the side of the birth of Jesus. So what I wanna show you is how, what Luke does is he immerses us in a particular story that focuses around least, last, and lost and helps us make sense of the miracles of Jesus. How I'm gonna do that uh, is I'm gonna look at one particular story that frames that, and then we're gonna jump into one miracle story of Jesus just to help us with that. Now, the first uh, of our, and both, both of our texts have actually been read already this evening, but I wanna just remind you of them. If you're the kind of person that's tracking with a Bible, you might wanna have your Bible in Luke chapter four, whether that's on your app or, or you're using a paper Bible. What you'll have noticed is, um, 
Maybe you didn't notice it. Let me point it out to you. Luke chapter 4 and verse 14. The story began with Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. So the question on everybody's lips uh, as, the, as they heard that read was, but where did he return from? Right? I know that's what you were all thinking. Uh, <laughs> and it says he was teaching in their synagogues and everybody praised him. And he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. So he's back home. And on the Sabbath day, what day was he there? The Sabbath day, it says. Really important uh, point. Uh, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it, he found the place where it's written. And he reads these words from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. In those days, how it used to work is you would stand to read scripture and then the teacher would sit down to do the teaching and, um, and everybody else would stand and, and listen. And, um, I've tried this in my church a few times, but nobody's up for adopting it as a new strategy. So now we all just sit down and it makes it easier. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened upon him. Why? What had he said that required everybody to stare so intently at Jesus? That's another question that you perhaps had. And then he began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What scripture is fulfilled and why is it fulfilled? What does that even mean, Jesus? You see, if you grew up in a Jewish context and went to the synagogue regularly, reading from Isaiah is very common. Isaiah was this prophetic text that spoke to hopes of the restoration of Israel, hopes of God's deliverance to them as a people. And Isaiah 61, which Jesus reads here, is hugely common in the liturgy of their, of their tradition to read from this. Why it's so important is because it frames out a couple of things that are really key. It frames out what the Messiah, Messiah literally just means the anointed one. So this text opens with the Lord anointing someone. And the person that's anointed would be the king, the liberator, the, the, the leader of freedom. And then it lists things that this person will do. And notice there's an element of the miraculous in here, the recovery of sight for the blind. So what's happening is this, this prophetic text is being read about God's future and how it's going to be restorative for those who are downtrodden, you know, kind of helping for those who are vulnerable and oppressed and for those who are disabled or injured it's about recovery but some things happened in the course of the hundreds of years of the reading of this text which is and we all do this so we're not picking on anyone for this we have a tendency to read texts through our own lenses so we think, well, this is about us. You notice whenever you read anything ancient, you often take the good bits and say, that applies to me, and the bad bits, that applies to the people I don't like. And what is starting to develop was this hope that God's gonna be doing stuff in us to help us, and while he's helping us, he will definitely not be helping everybody else. So Jesus picks up this text. You can go in your own time and read all of Isaiah 61. You can see what Jesus does. In fact, it'd be curious to go and read it and see if you spot it. Because he gets to this point and he says, and he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and hands it back. And everybody's staring at him. The reason everyone's staring at him is in the Hebrew text that Jesus is working from, he stopped halfway through a sentence. If you go across to Isaiah 61, you'll notice that it says that this, this anointed person is here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of their God. And Jesus reads the bit about God's favor and then closes the book, hands it back and sits down. And everybody's like, well, wait a minute, you're about to read the good bit, the good bit where we remember that God loves us and doesn't like anybody else. And Jesus stops halfway through the text and says, oh, by the way, this, this is now fulfilled. But he's not talking about God's vengeance. He's talking about God's favor. So then, now think about this, the story then picks up, and you heard it read, the story picks up, everybody spoke well of Jesus, we're amazed at these gracious words. Now, why are they gracious words? Because there was no vengeance, right? And then somebody goes, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> this is Joseph's son, right? Which is a little bit kind of edgy. This is not some trained rabbi that can read text, this is that carpenter's, uh, this carpenter's son. And Jesus said to them, well, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have all heard you did in Capernaum. 
And Jesus continues, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in hometown. And then he goes further. Jesus pushes it just a little bit further. He says, I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout all the land. And yet Elijah was not sent to any of the widows of Israel, but sent to, and let me just abbreviate here, sent to a foreigner. And then there were many people in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha. But nobody was healed of it, Jesus says. But Naaman the Syrian, another foreigner, he was healed of it. Just think about what Jesus has done just there. So he's cut the text short. I'm not going to read about the vengeance of God. I'm only going to read about God's favor. And people are like, well, you don't really know what you're doing. And then Jesus dives into scripture and says, oh, wait a minute. God had plenty of opportunity to help us at points in the past and exclude others, and he never did it. Instead, what he did, he's, he included even our enemies in his graciousness. And then you get perhaps you know, a, a, huge, uh, a hugely surprising piece. This is like Jesus' first recorded sermon in Luke, and it goes really well, because verse 28 says, all the people in synagogue were furious when they heard this, and they got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But Jesus walked right through the cloud and went on his way. You see, just be aware of this. When preachers get up and say, it's so sad that we're not here in person, also they're aware of the fact, but at least you can't throw me off the cliff if this sermon goes really, really badly. But of course, you're asking a question, uh, and I know the question is still on your lips because we've not answered it. The question you were asking was, yeah, but where had Jesus returned from? Uh, because the story started with when Jesus returned. Uh, and I know that's the question that everyone's thinking because you don't want to let it go. <laughs> Where had Jesus returned from? We see Luke 4 is a fascinating passage because right prior to this, where Jesus had been was he'd been in the desert for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Satan had been harassing him. And what's interesting is that Jesus is in this temptation period. And if you go and read the story in your own time, what you'll actually see is this, this story of the Satan and Jesus kind of duking it out together in the desert is actually an argument about Scripture. Satan says to Jesus, well, why don't you do this? And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that because that's not how the Bible works. And then Satan brings a biblical text to Jesus and says, well, the Bible says this. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, no, but it also says this. So this, the way you're reading it, is wrong. The whole temptation of Jesus focuses around a question as to how we interpret the Bible. Satan wants to read, and let me say this again. This is the point where I say something and risk being thrown off the cliff. Um, Satan wants to read the Bible literally, and Jesus suggests to Satan there might be a better way to read Scripture. Satan says, doesn't the Bible just say this so you should do it? And Jesus says, no, because that's not how we work the Bible. Ironically, if Jesus takes the Bible literally as Satan shows it to him, Jesus chooses a path of evil. It is possible, we learn this in Luke chapter four, it is possible to do what the Bible says and follow Satan at the same time. So, that's a little heavy. <laughs> but Jesus reads scripture, and he, he says to the people, so he returns from a Bible battle with Satan, and he walks into the synagogue, and now he st stops reading halfway through a verse. He stops reading halfway through a passage. Why? Because you see, you can sometimes read the Bible exactly as it says and then do something thoroughly wrong with it. So Jesus comes in to bring about the favor and the grace of God and therefore he's not gonna open a conversation about God's vengeance. That's gonna work out entirely different. And so he offers this piece from Isaiah 61 redefining how God's gonna work. Wait a minute, everybody, you want me to talk about vengeance? I'm not gonna talk about vengeance. And let me just remind you that there was prophets in the past that reached beyond our borders. There was prophets in the past that reached to the marginalized, the oppressed, and even our oppressors, and showed us a new story of God. And Jesus arrives with this story, having battled the Satan, having presented this in the synagogue, and now having avoided being thrown off a cliff. I think that 
we need to think then about how this, and I think this is what Luke is doing intentionally in his gospel, is this narrative of a fight over the Bible, an interpretation of a vengeance-free message of God, and then the people's disturbance around the, the lack of exclusion in Jesus' message, all helps frame how Luke wants us to understand Jesus' ministry, which includes Jesus' miraculous ministry. Now, we're in a context, let me just say this because I think it's important, we're in a context where disability would be devastating and desolating for a person. Uh, this is not the sort of world that has a social health care program. This is not the sort of world that actually would even look too strongly at reaching out to help people who were disabled because often it would be seen as a form, let me use an anachronistic term, but it would be seen as a form of karma almost. So people would often keep their distance from the disabled and the oppressed in that sort of way because, well, who knows what sort of spirits are going on making that story happen. So we have to bear that in mind because there's a tendency within Christian theology to read the stories of the miracles of Jesus in a very ableist way and be quite dismissive of the tensions and context that are going on in there. But what I'm hopefully setting up for you as we jump into a new text is that these miracle stories of Jesus are interpreted through the lens of this moment in the synagogue in Luke chapter four that we've just looked at. If you read Jesus' miracle stories and come to the conclusion, isn't it cool that Jesus could do magic? Then I think you've missed what Luke's trying to tell you. What Luke's trying to tell you is you're gonna see Jesus do stuff and it is a marker of a new era, of a new king and of a new way of doing things that's gonna incorporate all people, even those who the dominant reading of our scriptures would suggest we should exclude them. So we're now gonna jump over to Luke chapter 13. In Luke chapter 13, guess what? It's the Sabbath again, uh, the day when nobody's supposed to be doing anything except going to church. And um, the synagogue, I'm being sarcastic. And sure enough, Jesus on this Sabbath is in the synagogue. It's Luke chapter 13, verse 10. It was brilliantly read for us earlier. But I wanna point a couple of things out to you just here. So Luke, is, Luke tells us Jesus is teaching in the synagogues. And behold, a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit. So again, notice that interpretation. This woman is crippled and it's some sort of evil force that's doing this. So once again, there's a battle between the Satan and Jesus. What we saw in Luke 4 is continuing now, but it's no longer a battle over scripture, it's a battle over a woman's health. Or is it? <laughs> she was bent over and couldn't straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free. If you write on your Bible, just underline that word set free for a moment. Jesus says, you're set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. <laughs> I laugh every time I read this because this is just one of the most ridiculous sentences ever uh, if you've understood Luke chapter four. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. I mean, what is wrong with you if that's your response to somebody being miraculously healed for from 18 years of pain. Like, oh my goodness, on a Saturday? Like, what about Sunday through Friday? Like, you could come at any point to get this help. I mean, it's, it is just, I mean, and bear in mind, Luke is writing this to make that be your reaction. Like, like, how could you be indignant at somebody being healed? The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. And then Jesus jumps into scripture. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie, if you're writing in your Bible, just underline that word untie. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free, underline that word set free, on the Sabbath day from what bound her? And when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. The people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Like what's going on here in this somewhat ridiculous story? On one level, the question is, can Jesus heal someone who has a crippling illness? But that really is the question of our first question. It depends how you see reality. But the bigger question is what's actually going on here. And I would suggest, this miracle is completely in line with everything that Luke's been telling us from Luke chapter four, and it exposes how scripture can be used to oppress and exclude, and therefore actually accomplish the exact opposite of God's kingdom intentions. 
Look at how it all works out in the text. Now, you've underlined three words in your text right now. Why do I underline them? Because, because what you've seen in your English translation is the word woman, you are set free from your infirmity. On the Sabbath, do not untie your ox. Shouldn't this woman be set free? In the Greek text that Luke is writing in, it's the same word all three times. So Jesus actually says, woman, you are loosed from your, from your infirmity. And then he turns to the synagogue leader and says, but doesn't each of you on the Sabbath loose your ox or your donkey? So shouldn't this woman be loosed from what Satan kept her bound for 18 years? Jesus has done something beautifully creative that he's, he's, he's basically tied, if you'll forgive me, a thread through the whole story around this idea of someone being loosed. And he's drawing a comparison. The comparison is kind of ugly because he's drawing a comparison between this crippled woman and a donkey. But here's the ugly side of the comparison, is Jesus is saying to the synagogue leader, because of your reading of the Bible, you'd be nicer to a donkey than a woman. You would actually exclude the woman from being healed because she's on the wrong day because of how you read the text. But that same logic and that same text, when you look at your thirsty donkey, you would loose it and walk it to a watering hole. Jesus essentially seems to be saying that people will treat other people worse than animals on the basis of a bad interpretation of sacred texts. Like think about what's happening here. Someone, the synagogue leader, is trying to use their reading of scripture in an authoritarian way which will result in limiting a human's capacity to fully experience God. The text says this, so you can't fully experience what God wants to do in your life. And Jesus' miracle is in direct contrast to that. Might I then suggest to you that this way of reading the message and relevance of miracles is an ever-present challenge to us as Jesus' followers today. Both Jesus and the leader have reverence for Scripture, and they both trust it. But one of them has what Angela Parker would call reasonable reverence, and the other one has irrational reverence. Irrational reverence means that folks begin to use the Bible not as a conversation starter, but as a conversation ender. Have you ever been in one of those conversations where somebody says, yeah, but the Bible says. And the moment the Bible says is rolled out, it's often basically the be all and end all in the argument. The biblical text becomes like a hammer just to exert authoritarianism. This is what the Bible says. And bear in mind, when I say this is what the Bible says, what I mean is, this is how I read the Bible, and now it's being used as a weapon to silence you. You can't heal this woman today because the Bible says it's the Sabbath. And Jesus says, yeah, but you're not even being consistent with that. You'd loose a donkey, but you wouldn't have me loose this woman. See, our desire to exclude people because we have power will always confront and contradict the way of Jesus. So when we use scripture as a weapon, we're preventing ourselves from standing up straight in the presence of Jesus. We're crippling ourselves. We're, we're choosing to stay hindered in the way that we could call and follow Jesus. The synagogue leader is taking this sort of fixed approach to the text. The synagogue leader is reading the text literally in the same way as Satan did in the desert. And what's happening then is with this fixed approach. You notice what he actually does? He uses his power and his authority to gaslight Jesus. Like, you can't do this. You can't, you can't speak like this. You don't even have the right to do this. This is inappropriate. And sometimes that fixedness works and we get stuck in it. But what actually happens is we get stuck in immaturity because we don't ask the right question, which is what is God trying to do here? And how is God trying to transform and heal all of us actually? And how are we being invited by what Jesus is doing and the kingdom of God is doing to grow in our understanding and our revelation of God and how we might then look at things differently? Angela Parker, who I've mentioned already, wrote this phenomenal little book uh, called If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Uh, it's about black lives matter and biblical authority. And she states it like this in her book. Mature people engage the complexity of the biblical text as it points us to the presence of God without it becoming God or an idol. The miracles of Jesus, I think, call us to exactly that. So did they happen? That's up to you. I confess the creed and I confess the miracles as well. What do they mean? <laughs> well, I think the miracles are graphic portrayals 
of God being against exclusion. And therefore, actually the miracles of Jesus become kind of hermeneutical lenses for how we should read the Bible, for how we should read scripture. And actually, as a way of guiding us how not to be exclusionary and use our reading of the text to hurt and oppress. And perhaps, perhaps the miracles also teach us how we should believe and how we should behave, not just in the presence of disability, but in the presence of all people that our culture, our training, or our background might encourage us to exclude, whether accidentally or intentionally. Jesus said he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and that seems to be what his miracles are trying to do. Logan. To a time of questions now. Um, so for any of you online who have questions for me, um, I would love to hear it, but I'm just going to adjust this microphone real quick. <laughs> so send them in. What's a hermeneutical lens? That's a good question. Sorry. As I said that, I thought I should have uh, clarified that. Phil just uh, heckled me and asked what a hermeneutical lens is. <laughs> I am um, uh, hermeneutics is um, is a German word to describe some submarine. Uh, no, I'm only joking. <laughs> yeah. um, her hermeneutics is essentially the study of how we interpret things, how we understand and, and unpack and interpret things. Um, and what we like to think often is that we interpret things just by by picking up text, looking at it, and reading it. But you know, what we need to confess constantly is that by the time we get to any text, whether it's the Bible or the New York Times, by the time we get to the text, we've put a lot of things on. Right? You know, the fact that the text is in English probably means that I've been through a journey of education to learn that. That education has shaped me, has viewed me. Where do I come from? What's my philosophy on life? What's my political standings? All these things are like extra lenses and a pair of glasses. So then when I actually pick up the text, I see it through all of that. You know, sorry, I talked about um, how there's a way of reading texts that's full of suspicion. Let me just assume this is false and then I'll see if I think it's true. That's known as a hermeneutic of suspicion. But I'm suggesting, what if we picked up the text and thought, well, what if it's true and let me see what happens otherwise? That's a hermeneutic of trust. So when I talked about hermeneutical lens right at the end there, there's a tendency within religious people to assume exclusion unless we see otherwise. So our hermeneutic lens is there's us and then there's them. And what Jesus seems to be doing in Luke chapter four is changing our hermeneutical lens and saying, what if you thought about it the complete other way around? What if you assumed that there's us until you see something from God that suggests otherwise. And then all of these miracles happen. They're, they're constantly happening to people that are not the high and the mighty and the, you know. Um, and then like, and if, even if you, if you jump out of Luke's gospel, I always think it's interesting in Mark, there's this moment where Jesus does go to help a, a, a privileged person, Jairus, whose daughter's ill. And on the way to help Jairus, he stops to help a, a marginalized person, you know. So, so my hermeneutical lens is almost the, 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 how do we approach text? And do we approach text in a way that's against exclusion or a way that's exclusionary? So my follow-up my follow question mm. personally would be, what do we do with our lenses then? Do we get rid of our lenses or do we mm. acknowledge our lenses or how do we change the lenses that we look at mm. scripture with? Can I just say it's terrifying talking to you as well, by the way. Like, <laughs> like, like I just met you this evening and, and, you're, and, and, then, oh, and this is Logan and he's doing philosophy. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Uh, you know, this is gonna be so... Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's a great question, and I think the answer is both, or yes, uh, you know, and. Um, some lenses you can't take off, and some you can, right? So um, if you were raised in a very racist context, I think you can take some of those lenses off, but also you need to be aware of the fact that your upbringing will shape you so much that even if you're attempting to take some of those lenses off, they may still slip back on. Right. So I think there's two things need to, be, need to be done. One, let me use the example of exclusion and inclusion. I can, I can do what Luke wants me to do, right? Bear in mind, Luke is writing a gospel in a highly exclusionary world, right? And he sets up this story at Luke chapter four at the very beginning, I think to make that point. You're gonna have to work really hard as a reader to see that Jesus is against exclusion and I'm gonna keep, and basically I'm setting this up at the start as a way for you to read forward. 
But, but he's also aware of the fact that you're going to keep forgetting this. So what he's going to do, he's going to tell you stories about lost sons and lost sheep and, 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 and the, the least of these and a good Samaritan. And, because it's all trying to keep resetting you. Hey, 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 <laughs> I told you at the start, put those lenses down, but you're going to keep bringing them back on. So for me, the role of Christians that, that want to take the gospel seriously is be aware of the fact that depressingly, some of our biases will stay with us forever. But once you're aware of the bias... I think you can then sometimes say, well, with that in mind, I'm going to have to be careful navigating this. You know, who am I, who am I reading that will help me keep those lenses off? Who am I, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, sure. um, I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> we got uh, one from here, and just talking about your inclusion talk. Mm. Um, inclusion can look different depending on the culture you align with. Could you describe mm. what the culture at the time would understand inclusion as? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, one thing, just I use the language not of inclusion but of of, of being against exclusion, right? Um, that was that's uh, language rooted in Miroslav Volf's um, uh, book Exclusion and Embrace. Uh, really worth the read uh, if anybody uh, wants to take on a really really good piece of theology around the whole questions of in- inclusion. Inclusion and now the challenge with inclusion and the way it's used in the kind of popular realm is that it becomes uh, sort of inclusion at, uh, at all costs. What Jesus does, Wolf would say, is Jesus welcomes everyone, but he welcomes everyone to be his disciple, right? So, so, for, so like, like Zacchaeus wants to follow Jesus, guess what? And it's in Luke's gospel. <laughs> Gonna have to sort out some financial issues. He doesn't say, well, you're pretty corrupt, Zacchaeus, but hey, I'm inclusive, come and join me. He says, you're welcome to join me, Zacchaeus, but this has gotta be fixed. This has gotta be put together. Um, so I think, um, I, I think that's an important clarifying piece to make that, that Jesus might, um, might, might do that. And I've, sa- I've said that and then forgotten the second half of the question. So repeat that for me. <laughs> um, what would they have understood inclusion as yes. in that culture? I think that um, inclusion, and actually, and, and this might, I, my hope would be this might help anyone reading the text. Inclusion in, in, in the world of Jesus would probably have been most likely understood through the lens of what they saw happening in the Roman world. The Romans considered themselves inclusive. Uh, and what that meant was, um, we would like you to be part of Rome. Uh, if you would not like to be part of Rome, you're welcome to die. Um, and so the Romans moved their way across the empire, just basically killing everyone that didn't agree to join them. Right? So, so Rome, Tom Wright, that brilliant New Testament scholar, talks about how Rome was trying to turn the world monochrome, right? Basically, inclusion means you can look like us. What's fascinating, if you jump across to, to one of Luke's friends, St. Paul, Ephesians chapter 310, um, Paul talks about the church as a direct contrast to the monochrome of Rome. He says that God's wisdom is displayed through the church by its multi, multiplicity, really. So actually, what you see is that inclusion would mean uniformity, what the New Testament, particularly you see this in Paul's letters, what the New Testament pushes is, is being against exclusion via unity in diversity. So, so the, the idea was you're welcome, you're welcome in your diversity to be unified with us. N- uniformity you know, is not inclusion. <laughs> but I think that's what the average person in the first century would have thought of, is inclusion involved you know, a lot of, uh, you know, assimilation. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate those distinctions. I think mm. that's really helpful to be able to understand what that even looks like for us to mm. be against exclusion. Mm. That's cool. Yes, yes. Um, they're rolling in now. The questions are rolling in now. But, um, <laughs> as long as no one throws me off a cliff, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we only got like seven people here. So, I mean, <laughs> but this stage is pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who knows? Um, so... Uh, please comment on the idea that Jesus only used power to heal and free people and never to push or gain advantage over his enemies. Mm, that's, a good, that's a good question. Well, I mean, you know, n- no sermon that pertains to be about the gospel should not, uh, should fail to talk about the cross. Right? Um, there's a, a brilliant uh, little work from kind of middle, early uh, 20th century by, uh, I'm going to say Swedish and then Phil can heckle me if I'm wrong, <laughs> by a Swedish theologian called Gustav Allen, uh, called Christus Victor. Um, and uh, Allen looks at how does the cross work, uh, which is a deep question that the New Testament never fully explains to us. But Allen points out that one of the things the cross does 
is it shows us God's response to evil and violence. Uh, and, and how that happens is that God absorbs it in himself on the cross. So, so do we see Jesus use his power in the New Testament? Yes, fundamentally, we see it on the cross. Um, now, so what again we're seeing happening, and uh, forgive me if I'm sounding like a dripping tap, but we're seeing a reprogramming going on, right? What does it mean to look powerful? Well, not like anything you've seen before. So, so does Jesus use his power? Yes, he uses it by, he, he has this conversation with Pilate actually in John chapter 19. He says, I have power, it's just not power that you would understand. You know, he says, if I wanted to, I could call angels to come and protect me, but you wanna see real power? I won't do that, right? Um, and so I think what we're being invited into in the gospels is that Jesus could but he chooses to redefine how we understand power. Uh, and, and, and therefore, so even like you think about this, how often the people that are trying to exclude Jesus are present around him and he refuses to exclude them. He challenges them, they argue a lot, you know, but they're always present. You know, he's still in the synagogue <laughs> and it's the synagogue leader. So the guy that invited him to come and teach, he's now having an argument with, but he's present to the space and he's not abusing anyone in that space. So that, that's how I would see that anyway, if, that, if that's helpful. So good. Um, we have another one here. It says, yeah. I have a situation um, with a friend, and he said that this is what the Bible said, and it seemed like the conversation ended, and so he asks, how do I not make it a closed conversation um, when he comes up with that statement and said, this is what the Bible said? I think that it will always be a challenge for anyone pursuing you know, religion of any sort, actually. Uh, when, when we get sacred texts, and texts become idolatrous to us actually and and um i saw somebody actually just just today post i think it was abraham joshua Heschel, who said that an idol is a god that's for me but not for you right and and so what happens is i start to read the text in a way that works for me but not working for you and then i i double down and, and defend it um let's go back to hermeneutical lenses for a second a really good hermeneutical lens is the word of god is Jesus, <laughs> and everything, and, and that when we, when we pick up the Bible, it, you know, again, I'm, I'm actually, I've done a big circle here, we're back to Karl Barth now, uh, the, the, the Swiss theologian. The Bible is the word of God in as much as it points us to the word of God that is Jesus. So how do we read the text? We read it through a Jesus lens. So, well, well, so everything that you do, you put on, I mean, I would say cross-shaped lenses. So, so this is what power looks like. It looks like the cross. Now let's reread the whole Bible through that lens. That's a Christian reading of a text. Now if I had a Jewish friend here, they would say, oh, I don't like that, and that's okay. But for me, I would say as a Christian, the text gets read through the lens of Jesus. So notice what Jesus does. He doesn't do book closing conversation enders, right? If I can, if I can be liberal with my time for a second, uh, stay in Luke's gospel, go right to the very end. And if you want a model for biblical interpretation, you've got Jesus arguing with Satan at the start in chapter four going literal but not right. Go to the story of, of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Right? And so he bumps into, I'm gonna do this as quick as I can. Um, Jesus bumps into two disciples who have given up, right? <laughs> Jesus has been killed. Uh, they have decided this was a bad idea, this whole Jesus thing, and they're leaving Jerusalem and heading somewhere else, which if you followed all of Luke's story is a narrative image of them quitting. And Jesus comes along beside them and he meets two of his disciples who are quitting being his disciples. And he says to them, what's going on? And they go, we're quitting being Jesus' disciples because he was killed. And the Bible says that then Jesus walks with them away from Jerusalem in the wrong direction and he starts unpacking the whole of the story with them until eventually he takes them to the communion table. Right? Um, and he breaks bread with them. They realize who he is, and then the text says he disappears and they return to Jerusalem. Right? So they're back on track with being a disciple. Jesus doesn't engage with biblical narrative, biblical discussion in a way that just slams the book shut. He's actually willing to come alongside somebody and say, well, let's walk in this even if we're going in the wrong way, we're gonna walk in the wrong direction for a little while and keep unpacking the story through a Jesus lens till we decide, oh yeah, there's a better way to read this. And, and I realize that's all very metaphorical at some level, but I would say that I think he's giving us a model at some level as to how to deal with those kind of Bible says, slam it shut. Well, you can just walk away or you can say, all right, well, let's just go with that for a while and let's just keep going until we find ourselves saying, well, does that really sound like Jesus? And, and I think that if somebody really wants to follow Jesus, I'm a great believer in Jesus, right? Yeah. And what I mean by that is, 
I think that if we immerse ourselves in scripture, it will point us to Jesus. So even if we jump into Jesus to begin with and get the wrong idea, stay there. Stay in the gospels and let them do their work. Too often what we do is we jump out of the gospels or jump out of the story of scripture and fight. (laughs) And I said, let's stay there. Stay there a little longer and see what happens as we tell the story. Are there there some texts do you think that could be read um, like some genre of text that are meant to be read more literally than others, or are all yes, or are all texts meant to be read through that lens that, that you're talking about? Um, I think that some texts should definitely not be led, read literally. They will be um, when you see people writing Bible texts on the side of bombs that are then being attached to airplanes. You should never read texts like that, right? So there's definitely ways to not read texts. Um, I believe the resurrection is literal. Uh, I, I believe, um, and that's why, I mean, you know, like come and talk about whether miracles really happen. You're talking about something really crazy. I also believe Jesus was raised from the dead, right? Um, and that's a really nuts thing to believe if I start with a hermeneutic of suspicion. But if Jesus is the word, if Jesus is truth and judges everything else accordingly, then I'm gonna start with the resurrection. I think there's lots of interesting ways to read the resurrection metaphorically. Um, and they still have value. Like, I think asking the question, what does the resurrection mean, is profoundly important. But at its core, I also still believe that there was an empty tomb in Jerusalem that the disciples looked into and didn't see a body. You know? awesome. um, and I think from there on out, two things happen. Number one, if you're willing to believe that, there's a whole host of crazy stuff that you can then start to believe. Uh, and like, so, like if somebody, somebody says to me, I don't believe the miracles, I get that. I understand that. I believe all of them, right? Um, and not that I'm the parameter of how you should shape your belief, right? But I believe all of them because actually once I've decided that God has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ, like, like that's a pretty big claim, right? So actually the idea that he was born of a virgin, the idea that wise men trekked across the desert to bring him some gold, like that's really easy to believe in comparison. So, so I think that there are times that, that we almost, we get caught up in the literal question because we approach it the wrong way. Let's read it through the resurrection and start to work backwards and ask ourselves, is it really so difficult to believe? Yeah, you know? um, but be careful. Even if you do read it literally, you should still ask the question then, well, then what does it mean? Right? Let me jump into just a really controversial example. You know, the Genesis story. Did God really make the world in six days or did he not? Actually, the real important question to ask there is, but what is this story trying to tell us about God? And so often what we see is we argue over the literal or non-literal reading and never ask the theological question, what is this telling us about God? I love that. I could go on about that Genesis (laughs) idea. Um, Oh, I have two, but one just came in. I'll I'll read this other one first. Um, How do you deal with people who blame um, all all disabilities are from evil spirits and read that story literally Mm. um, where Jesus heals the woman when it could be a multitude of reasons mm. or even part of God's purpose. Luke is uh, an ancient writer, right? So he's going to interpret everything through the lens that he understands it. Uh, so there's one way to read the text which just says, this is how they understood sickness in the ancient world, right? Um, there's another way to read it theologically that of course there is a level to which, and, and please don't hear what I'm not saying at this point, but the biblical narrative on illness is that it's part of the brokenness of, of, of creation. It is, it is not God's hope and intention that people are in pain for 18 years. So, so whether it's a physical evil spirit or just the manifestation of the brokenness of God's good creation, you know, both of them, the biblical writers would say, are evidence of the lack of the goodness of God, right? And not of God's goodness in terms of God being good, but a space in the world where God's goodness is not being fully realized. Um, I think that in terms of, let me, you know, let me speak as a pastor for a second, because that's a, that's what I'm supposed to be. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think we should avoid at, at almost a 100% level ever attributing people's illnesses to evil spirits, right? That is the business of God, right? Uh, that, that's like the pastorally, that is so damaging to someone because what people intend to do, uh, whether they mean it or not, is, is the moment you start to raise that dialogue, or well, what spirit has caused this? The next question is, and therefore why? 
right? Um, whereas the ancient world wouldn't see the, the presence of evil spirits in quite so black and light, white way. In some sense, yes, some people believed you do bad things, you open up the world to the evil eye and all that sort of stuff. But there was also a belief that evil is just running rampant. So sometimes it just happens. What, we, what I've seen in my pastoral experience is that people, when they start talking about what has caused this illness, very quickly a question of blame follows and, and the Bible doesn't seem to want us to be part of that narrative. Um, in fact, the closest you get to that is John chapter nine where Jesus says, well, what if it just happened so that God's glory could be shown? So, so I would, be, I would, I would like genuinely beg for the m- utmost caution um, and, and rejection, to be honest with you, of attempts to try and ascribe that to somebody's, somebody's illness in the present. Yeah. Um, this is talking about the, the shutting down of the phrase the Bible says, and so um, they ask, but for some things which might be difficult for us or we don't understand, mm-hmm. don't we sometimes need to just say the Bible says and let ourselves be changed by the Bible? I'd love to think it was that simple, mm-hmm. but the Bible says was used to support slavery. The Bible says was used to support the exclusion of women. Um, the Bible says is being used to damage a lot of people even to this day. And you know, even in our present narrative, the Bible says is being used. You know, think about how that phrase or allusions to that phrase have been used just through COVID, right? Uh, you know, where, where people's behavior is somehow being adjudged by a phrase that the Bible says. Um, the, the Bible is the word of God in that it points us towards Jesus. So, so closing down discussion implies a grasp on Jesus that I'd be cautious of. You know, what do I know about Jesus? I know that I don't know him fully, right? So, so I wanna be very cautious of closing the door down on what I can say authoritatively, especially if my attempts to say something authoritatively are to, are to close things down. What we do see is that, um, you know, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that Jesus was raised from the dead. So yeah, say that. You know, I'm happy with that. Uh, Paul in Galatians 3 says that in Christ Jesus, there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female. That to me seems pretty confident that you can say the Bible says that men and women are equal, right? Um, you know, like, so I, I think you can hold certain places that you can say, and the reason you can say it is because you can see the trajectory of Jesus in it. Um, but I want to be cautious and I want to be generous, to be honest with you. I want to be generous to my own brokenness. Um, and and th- millions of people have been harmed throughout the world because the Bible says. Um, and, and now we would look back at that and say, clearly the Bible does not say. <laughs> or the Bible does say that, but it clearly does not intend it to be said that particular way. So I would... Um, you know, my word on that would be, you know, I would want to tread very, very cautiously, particularly when we start using the phrase to define ethical standards and, 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 and morals. I think, I think we can say, as best as we can read the text right now, I think we can say that, that we, from what we know of Jesus, this seems to be uh, a good way to read the text. You know, I think you can be, I'm like, I'm really confident in scripture. Please don't get me wrong on that. But, uh, but I, don't, I just want to avoid language that is, that is a power move, basically. Right. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's, that's where we get in danger, yeah. you know. Yeah, I would say as well, it's probably good to lean into some of the, one, the ones that make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are Absolutely. definitely times to be critical of that. Well, the Bible is the word of God in as much that it points us to the word of God that is Jesus, right? right? If the Bible is pointing us towards Jesus, therefore calling us into a Jesus-like manner, it's gonna be uncomfortable because I'm not very Jesus-like. So it's the Bible, uh, Brian Walsh, the Canadian theologian uh, says, you know, when was the last time you read the Bible and it made you feel uncomfortable? If it was a long time, you're probably reading the Bible wrongly. Um, but that's a very different thing than reading the Bible in a way that makes other people uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. But Great. Well, I think that's what we have for questions. So thank you. Um, thank you so much for, for speaking with us, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much yeah. for having me. Great.